0: So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to another Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. For our new listeners, I'm your host, Leanne Ward, Australian nutritionist, dietitian, and sports dietitian, and oh boy, do I have a treat for you guys today. The episode we are about to jump into will clear up so many myths and questions that you have around gut health, and at the end, we will also answer a few listener questions as well. So if you're interested to learn more about the gut-brain axis, leaky gut, gut testing and diagnosis, probiotics, and the link between gut health and nutrition, don't go anywhere. Our expert guest today is nationally recognized gastroenterologist and speaker, Dr. Serena Pazricha. She completed her undergrad training in biological anthropology and nutrition from Harvard University. She finished 16 years of additional education and medical training to become a double board certified gastroenterologist. Dr. Serena also obtained a Master's of Science in Clinical Research so that she can best use evidence-based medicine to educate the public. She has been published extensively in the most respected gastroenterology journals and has given more than 50 national presentations. Dr. Serena has a passion for gut health, the gut microbiome, and the role of the brain-gut pathway. She believes that you can obtain a happy and healthy lifestyle by focusing on good gut health. Make sure you guys go and give Dr. Serena a follow on her Instagram and her Facebook accounts. You can find her at Doc Serena, so D-O-C-S-A-R-I-N-A, and more information can be found on her website, www.docserena.com. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this podcast today. Welcome Dr. Serena to the podcast. We are very, very excited to have you on today. Thank you so much
1: for having me. I am thrilled to be here and I can't wait to talk and dive deep into all these issues we're going to talk about.
0: Yes, gut health is an absolute favorite area of mine personally because I've suffered from it for so many years as well, but also because a lot of my um, clients also suffer from it as well. So I'm so excited to pick your brains and get all of your wealth of knowledge about all of these things, gut health. So I would love for you to start by telling us, um, I guess, just the reason that you got into medicine and also why particularly um, gastroenterology.
1: So I was one of those people that kind of knew I wanted to go into medicine pretty much my whole life that I can remember. I have a younger sister um, and I was four years old when she was born. And when she was born, she was born with something called a congenital hip dysplasia. So basically her hip was born out of the socket. And so she had to undergo a lot of physical therapy when she was born and she was in the hospital. And so my early memories as a child being four and five years old was going to school, and then after school, going to the hospital to spend time with her, and um, just basically being in the hospital. Mm. So I think those early experiences kind of got me interested in seeing, like, oh, like what what do doctors do, and what do physical therapists do? And then when I was in about second or third grade, I was actually involved in a very serious car accident. Um, we were driving and some somebody hit us and they actually didn't think that I was going to survive wow. and, and come out alive. I was airlifted to the closest hospital and I had a um, neck dis- subluxation. So basically my neck was dislocated, wow. kind of had a broken neck. And I then had to undergo physical therapy. And I was in the hospital for months. I had to wear a full body cast that went from the top of my head all the way down to my hips. Wow! And so you can imagine like when this happens, and you're a child and you're in second and third grade, like mm. that really impacted the person that I am today and kind of what I wanted to do. And I saw those doctors and nurses and therapists, like, you know take such good care of me and my family and I am so appreciative for what they did and and I think that is what really made me say you know I want to go into healthcare and I want to be a doctor because there are very few professions where you can touch somebody on such a deep and personal level mm-hmm. and really change their whole life and future ahead of them and actually it's really cool cuz I went back and saw that doctor who took care of me just a few years ago. I saw him and I was just like, you know, I had some photos and I was like, this is me, like, you know, 30 years ago, you saved my life. And I went into medicine because of my experiences with you. You were my doctor and you had such an impact. So it was kind of cool to to meet him again.
0: Oh, I bet he loved that.
1: Yeah, it it was. I don't know. He probably doesn't remember me because, you know, they take (laughs) care of so many people. And that's the funny thing is that, you know, as a physician, you never know whose life you might impact. Um, mm. but he did have a very profound influence on my life. So I, I think those early experiences just opened my eyes up into medicine because neither of my parents are doctors. Um, I have one uncle who's a doctor, but most of my family's not in that field. So I I wasn't exposed to it otherwise. Mm-hmm. um, and so I think that's what made me want to go into medicine, and I always liked math and science as well. I was kind of one of those like science geeks growing up.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. And why did why did you choose gut health? Why did you choose gastroenterology? I love
1: gastroenterology. People think I'm so crazy, especially my <laughs> patients. Like I'm doing colonoscopies and talking about poop all day. And they're like, "Why are you going into this? Why did you choose this?" And you know. I like the variety that gastroenterology provides. Mm. When I talk to patients, I never know what I'm going to get because it encompasses so many different organ systems. The esophagus, stomach, Mm -hmm. liver, pancreas, gallbladder, large bowel, colon, hemorrhoids. Like There's so much that's all related to the GI tract. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like that diversity. And I also like working with my hands. I like doing procedures. I love the fact that I can uh, do a colonoscopy remove a precancerous lesion like a polyp and actually prevent somebody from getting cancer. Mm. So I'm not just treating people once they have illnesses, I'm trying to um, treat and prevent them from getting issues. So th- those are some of the reasons I went into gastroenterology. And I also like um, the fact that in gastroenterology, you're not usually seeing patients for a short period of time. Mm. Usually I'm seeing patients and following them over time. So I like that relationship I can develop with my patients and that often even extends to their family members. So I'll see somebody and then I'll see their brother, their daughter, their father, and I get to know the whole family. And I like that connection that I can develop.
0: It becomes a lot more personal, doesn't it? Exactly. Wonderful. Now, gut health is this super complex area. And particularly when you throw social media into the mix as well, a lot of people out there are just, they're just utterly confused. So I would love to start with just your definition of gut health in general, and then what we call this sort of gut brain access. And if you're able to explain that to our listeners a little bit as well.
1: Sure. So yeah, gut health is like the rage right now. (laughs) And (laughs) it seems like every medical profession is talking about it, which is awesome because I really do think it's really important. So Gut health, to me, when we talk about it, we're talking about the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And those are the trillions of gut bacteria that we have in our GI system. We have good gut bacteria and bad gut bacteria. And it's actually a pretty new development. We didn't really know much about this 10, 15 years ago. And so as we're learning more about it, we're realizing how important our gut health is and the gut microbiome is. Um, good gut health has been shown to be important in being overall healthy. So we know that we all have good bacteria and bad bacteria. And when they are in balance, then we are healthy. But there are things that happen in our lives or things that we do that can create an imbalance. And sometimes we might get more bad bacteria. And the research and studies are showing that If we have what we call gut bacterial dysbiosis Mm -hmm. or that imbalance, then we can develop lots of medical issues, including heart disease, cancer, obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, lung disease, pretty much everything that you could think of. It's being linked to that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that gut health is really important. And we're also realizing that, so it's not just we eat food we get the nutrition, it goes in our GI system, and then we poop it out. We are realizing that those gut bacteria are fluid and it's an entire microorganism and ecological community in our gut. And it's related to hormonal levels, it's related to our metabolism, and it's even related to our immune system. Mm. So I, I think that gut health is important. I'm so glad there's a lot of research coming out about it because we do definitely need to learn more about it. We're kind of just um, in the early stages, I think.
0: Mm, definitely. A lot of what we know has really been um, come through in leaps and bounds in the last couple of years, hasn't it? Yes, definitely. Wonderful. And when we think about this, what we call this gut-brain axis and the link between some of our mental health conditions and even the link that stress and anxiety plays on some of our gut symptoms, are you able to, I guess, break it down um, to our listeners in a, in a fairly simple way how our brain does influence our gut? So. There is
1: most definitely a brain-gut connection. Um, And I was actually, I I think I've always been fascinated by how our um, life and our lifestyle affects our gut health. So actually, gastroenterology normally is a three-year fellowship, Mm -hmm. and I did an extra year studying neurogastroenterology. Which is this exact field of irritable bowel syndrome and the brain gut pathway, studying motility and neurogastroenterology, because we know that our organs are not separate organs. They are all linked together. What we feel and what we experience in our brain, that stress, anxiety, worry, joy, happiness, all of those feelings are related to both our brain and our gut. So, in fact, the gut is called the second brain, mm-hmm. and that's because it's just as important as a the brain there are there are hormones like serotonin, so that's the happy hormone ninety five percent of serotonin is produced in our gut, so many people think about it serotonin as being in the brain, which it is, and when people are depressed, we often give them medications to boost their serotonin, but many people don't realize that. It's predominantly made in our GI system and in our gut. Um, And we also have a lot of nerves in our gut. There are more nerves in our GI system than in our spinal cord. There are 500 million nerves. So, you know, it's no wonder that when we're stressed or anxious that our gut picks that up, oftentimes picks it up first. I tell my patients, like, you might not even have processed it yet in your brain, that you are undergoing a stressful time period, Mm. but your gut is telling you that something is going on and your gut does not lie. So that's that whole like gut instinct. Mm -hmm. You have to listen to your gut instinct because it is really talking to you and um, guiding you along. So there, there are pathways. um, It's kind of like a highway that goes back and forth between your brain and your gut, your brain and your gut are in constant communication. So what you experience in your gut is being transmitted to your brain and vice versa. So um, I, I was very lucky that one of my mentors was one of the founders in this field of irritable bowel syndrome and brain gut pathway. So I had a chance to learn from him. His name is Dr. Doug Drossman. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's really fascinating. And when I talk to my patients, I tell them, I need to know what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. I need to understand what, is, what other life stresses you might be experiencing. How is your marriage? How is everything going on with your children? Because you know, that is going to tell me, as your gastroenterologist, what's going on in your GI system. Definitely. And many people have um, experienced this on like a, a minor level, because they might experience like butterflies in your stomach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's kind of like a minor version of irritable bowel syndrome.
0: And I'd love for you to even take that one step further and, and let our listeners know exactly what irritable bowel syndrome is, because I know that that's one of your specialties, because I feel like a lot of times um, people are just kind of left with that diagnosis. If the GP's done or the doctor's done all these other tests and nothing's really come up and they sort of ha- have left with this oversensitive gut or they feel like they're experiencing all of these symptoms, they just sort of come to me and they say, look, I have IBS. um So I'd love for you to break it down a little bit for our listeners exactly what it is, how we can sort of um, diagnose it, maybe in terms of the diagnosis pathways as well? Because I think a lot of people just sort of say, oh, well, I've got IBS and, and not realizing that it's actually a, a medical condition and we can actually diagnose it as well. Sure. So irritable bowel syndrome can
1: be really frustrating for many patients and even many providers um, because the definition of it kind of is evolving with time. And the, I think the most stressful part of it is that we don't have any laboratory tests or imaging that we can do that exactly pinpoints irritable bowel syndrome. So for example, many people will get an extensive workup which they need to get to rule out other issues like an endoscopy, colonoscopy, CAT scan, blood work. I like to make sure patients don't have celiac disease, that their Mm -hmm. thyroid is working. But then you're left with all these normal test results Mm -hmm. and patients get very frustrated. But it is a clinical syndrome. So irritable bowel syndrome is a clinical diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Patients experience abdominal pain and discomfort, often associated with a change in their bowel habits. So uh, many people might have normal bowel habits and then become constipated, or they might be normal and then get diarrhea. Or there's a third category where people were previously normal, and then they have now a mixed pattern where sometimes they get diarrhea and sometimes they get constipated. And it that change in your symptoms needs to have occurred over about a six-month period. Mm-hmm. Most people do get some abdominal relief when they've had a bowel movement, um, but it is a clinical diagnosis, which is why it's really important that you talk with your provider. But you have to make sure you don't have anything else more serious that can be treated with a specific medication. Um, but irritable bowel syndrome, like I was saying, many people experience it on a minor level where they have that butterflies in their stomach. But people with irritable bowel syndrome can actually experience a lot of pain and discomfort. Mm -hmm. Many people even end up in the emergency room Mm -hmm. with extreme pain, and they'll get those imaging studies and get everything, and it comes back normal. But it's just an extreme form of irritable bowel syndrome where the nerves have um, that pain threshold can change and shift, and they get something called visceral hypersensitivity. So, For example, a normal person doesn't necessarily experience and have pain as stool and food moves through their GI system. Mm -hmm. But somebody with irritable bowel syndrome, they become more sensitive and they can experience and they can actually feel their stool and their food moving through their GI system. They can experience more bloating and discomfort um and it's not a psychological issue you know we actually used to think that it was all in people's heads mm-hmm. and it was psychiatric but we now know that is not the case and that is not true at all it's just that we can't see those nerves and that nerve inflammation on the studies that we have mm-hmm. and we now know that it's not just a brain gut pathway which is what we used to think, we now know there's a brain-gut microbiome pathway. All of these things are important when you're talking about irritable bowel syndrome and your gut health.
0: I think our listeners will be very fascinated by that. And where do you, I guess, take that? I guess next step where a lot of people where they might not have a particularly uh, a GP or a doctor that's really specialized in the field of gastroenterology and the GP sort of says, well, we've done all the tests, they've all come back normal, you kind of have irritable bowel syndrome. If they don't fit into that clinical diagnosis where they've had these recurring symptoms for over six months, and I think it's at least once a week or something as well, isn't it? There's a time frame around that. Yes, correct. Yes. Um, if they don't sort of fit into that and they just are sort of lumped with, or you have a bit of a sensitive tummy. Do you see that a lot in your clinic? And again, that for patients that must be so overly frustrating, where they know that there's something going on, they know that it's not, you know, normal to have all of the symptoms, but then they don't have really a clinical diagnosis or um, really any anybody else to go to, I guess, to help to help them with their symptoms because they feel like they've exhausted their their normal GP or their normal doctor.
1: That is so frustrating um, for patients because they're feeling oftentimes lost and without any appropriate guidance. Mm. So um, because you're right, there is a specific definition and there are specific criteria for irritable bowel syndrome diagnosis, and not all people match that. Mm -hmm. And so then we're left with people who are still having some of these similar symptoms, but you're right, maybe it's not as frequent or maybe the time period hasn't been there yet. And when I see those patients, I realize that there's a problem with their gut health Mm -hmm. and they have most likely gut bacterial dysbiosis. They truly are experiencing the symptoms that they're experiencing. They're experiencing that bloating and discomfort. We just don't have a strict criteria yet for gut bacterial dysbiosis, but I can tell clinically as can many of gastroenterologists that your gut health is not okay we need to talk about your lifestyle and stress and sleep. We also need to talk about what food you're eating. Mm. Are you eating a diet that is predominantly, you know, processed foods, sugar, refined carbohydrates, or are you eating a healthy diet predominantly fruits and vegetables? Mm-hmm. So even though they don't have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome, I kind of look at it as a spectrum. Mm. They might head towards developing irritable bowel syndrome, but they clearly have some visceral hypersensitivity, meaning they have a sensitive gut. Mm-hmm. And we know that if the bacteria is abnormal, you are increasing your chances of getting this visceral hypersensitivity and feeling these sensations. So I think you you need to talk to somebody about all of those things. And we can talk about what I recommend now, or we can, we can talk about that a little bit later. But um, I do have suggestions when I see patients like that for how they can at least feel symptomatically better. I think first and foremost, it's important to make sure we're not missing anything serious Mm. because sometimes celiac disease or a cancer or inflammatory bowel disease can mask as these symptoms. But once you've had the workup done and you can feel reassured that at least you're not missing any of those issues, then we can talk about how best to get you feeling good again and feeling
0: like your normal self. I would love for you to tell our listeners um, even just your couple of top tips for anybody listening at home who may feel like they're in this exact pattern where they've had all those tests and everything's been ruled out, but you know, some days they're still really struggling with, with some of their symptoms and that overly sensitive gut, as you mentioned. So the first thing that I talk about is diet
1: mm-hmm. because our diet has evolved and changed for the worst mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially in, in America, and I 'm sure it's very similar in Australia, I actually studied abroad in Australia um, at University of New South Wales, so I'm familiar with that as well. but we are all eating way too much processed foods, meats, refined foods, and we're not eating the appropriate diet so. There was a uh, research that came out of university of San Diego, UCSD, and they did, um, they analyzed stool samples from hundreds of people and they were trying to figure out what is it that increases people's chances of having good gut health. And they found that the single greatest predictor of good gut health is eating a variety of fruits and vegetables. Sounds very simple, right? But it's not as easy <laughs> as you would think for many people. So, I mean, I, I can even tell you, I, I think that I had like a pretty healthy diet growing up. My mom made, um, most of my food. I come from an Indian family. Um, but I ate a lot of meat and dairy and, um, a lot of processed foods, especially in college. I think my gut health was not good when I went away. Um, and So I I have changed my diet, my lifestyle, what I talk to about my patients based on this research. So again, the key is 30 different fruits and vegetables in a week, 30 is kind of the magic number. And, um, I do recommend people kind of documenting what they eat because I also fall into a slump. I have two girls, one is three and one is six, and I try to give them a healthy diet. I have to pack their lunches every day. And what I'll notice is that if I'm not paying attention, I will give them carrots and broccoli every single day for lunch. (laughs) And that is good, but really the diversity is very important. So that's the first thing I talked about my patients. Make sure you're getting in your fruits and vegetables. Fiber is one of the key components Mm. there. Fiber creates short chain fatty acids. It helps to create good gut health, good gut bacteria. And we live in a fiber deficient country. So um, that most people should get 20 to 40 grams of fiber. That's the recommendation. And even that is probably too low. So um, more fiber than the better that is and cut down on the sugars and the processed food. So that's, and, and cut down meat and dairy as well. I find that if my patients can start to slowly make that change and I um, have been making this change slowly with time. I you know, don't think that anything drastic is necessary. I want people to do what is sustainable. And this is not a diet. This is just making lifestyle changes to improve your gut health. So um, that's kind of where I start with in terms of my diet. Mm-hmm. Then I talk about stress. And so I tell everybody they should stress less. (laughs) It's like the easiest thing to say. And it is the hardest thing to do. (laughs) Um, And I can totally relate. I am a mom. I work full time. I'm a wife. I'm trying to run around, take care of my kids, do work. And like, I have been very stressed out lately. And when I get stressed out, I can feel it in my gut too. I might even get stressed out before doing an awesome podcast with the fitness dietitian, <laughs> and I might feel. I was just this
0: morning too. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> and I might feel like, oh my god, like my my nerve GI tract is getting a little sensitive, and I might have to use the bathroom. <laughs> like, okay, I'm not feeling normal. So, you know, I I say this to people, but I'm a work in progress, and I'm trying my best too. But really, we do know that if we can lower that stress, then our gut health will be better. So Mm -hmm. I do different things. And um, the research has shown that if you can do meditation or yoga, those help even diaphragmatic breathing, like I, Mm -hmm. I just put my hands on my chest and my stomach. And even just taking five to 10 big deep breaths a day, can calm down our GI tract, can calm down the enteric nervous system, which is the gut's own nervous system. Mm -hmm. And it can help your um, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms. It can just help your overall gut health. It'll just make you feel better. So um, I recommend stressing less. I don't think no stress is realistic. And, And just talking about stress, you know, stress was evolutionarily there for a reason. Mm. stress can be very helpful. It can motivate us, it can push us to um, make sure that we're completing tasks on time. And evolutionarily, you know, if if an animal was chasing us, we needed that stress to kick in for that fight or flight response so that we can run away from the bear or whatever's chasing us. Mm -hmm. But when we get stressed, our GI tract shuts down. And that creates a whole host of issues. So, just trying to take a few minutes for yourself every day um, to relax and enjoy your life is good and will help your gut health. So, that's so first is diet, second is stress, the third thing is exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I, I tell my patients basically to play more and i can say this because i have little kids running around and exercise sometimes and for some people can be a stressful situation (laughs) like oh i have to get my clothes on i have to go to the gym i have to have my water bottle i have to like have all this time and Mm. then it negates the effect of the exercise but just think of it as fun play do what makes you happy Maybe you like to dance and you can dance or do Zumba. Maybe you like to bike when you are a kid and you can go and do a cycling class. So do things that make you have fun and take a friend, do it with people. Um, that, that's how I have to do it. I know that when I go exercise with friends, I enjoy it more. And it's not a work, it is fun. Because when we exercise, we increase things like short-chain fatty acids. An example people might've heard about is butyrate. And short-chain fatty acids are the food that feed the good gut health and the good gut bacteria. So when you exercise 30, 40 minutes a day, five times a week, you are creating and increasing the good bacteria that you have. Mm -hmm. So that's the third thing I recommend. And then the fourth thing is sleep. So many people don't know this, but when we talk about sleep, we often talk about melatonin. That's the um, sleep hormone. It helps with our circadian cycle. There's 400 times more melatonin produced in our gut than in our brain. So our gut is making melatonin as well. And so that's why this is like everything is connected to each other. Our sleep is connected to our gut. Our gut is connected to our sleep. We can't separate all these things. And and I don't think we should even try to. These are all intertwined. But trying to get good sleep is important. So little things um, like not looking at your phone or social media or tv for 30 minutes to an hour before you sleep can be really helpful in getting good deep sleep Mm -hmm. um so that's just one little tidbit that i recommend and i say this and i know it's not easy for many people out there especially um if you have young kids i'm just starting to get my sleep back again because my kids wake me up very frequently at night so um But just at least trying to keep a set schedule and a set cycle, like trying to go to bed at the same time every night, wake up at the same time, having some sort of sleep routine, Mm -hmm. trying not to work where your bed is. Because sometimes then when you go to sleep at night, your mind is still thinking about work or things you need to do. Um, So these are just little tips. And all of these things can help improve your gut health. Um, and there are actually very
0: simple, small changes that you can do definitely i love all of them and that's exactly what i talk to my patients about as well gut health in being this holistic thing whereas i see a lot on social media it's let's just throw all of these different pills and supplements and try all of these you know super restrictive diets rather than focus on what is actually going down and building that strong foundation first and looking at our sleep and looking at our stress levels and i love that you brought in exercise because i see it in a lot of clients that come to me and they say you know i'm doing i love exercise i love it and they're going to like um, we have F45, which I think is sort of similar to, you guys have like orange theory and there's really high, um, int- um, intensity sort of classes and they go into, you know, a hit class six times a week at 5 a.m. in the morning. And I'm like, do you have any idea how stressful that is for your body? Like, it's not a bad way of exercising, but when you're doing that multiple, multiple times a week, super, super early in the morning, of course, that's going to place additional stresses on your body rather than just going for, you know, a lovely walk with your dog or with a friend or something like that, which is still movement for your body and really positive, but not going to add that additional stress to your system as well. And I've actually had clients tell me, they've had to run to the bathroom midway through a workout class. And I'm like, as you said, isn't that sort of telling you something that your body, you're just placing it under a little bit too much stress if your bowels are going so frequently that you're running off to the bathroom midway through an exercise class?
1: There's something called runner's trot and runner's diarrhea. (laughs) So because what we do, so most people, um, because – They might live a sedentary lifestyle or not eat healthy. Many people develop constipation and slow gut motility. Mm. And when we exercise, it does speed up our gut motility. So it kind of does speed things through. Just like we exercise and we're when we do that, we're exercising our arms and our legs. Kind of our gut does get exercised as well and it moves things through. Um, so and sometimes it's helpful for my constipated patients, especially. (laughs) I'm like, you should do this. But you also, you're right, you don't want to take it to an extreme level. I think anything that's taken to an extreme level is not going to be healthy for our body and for our gut health. Um, And so I do, you know, want people to be kind to your body. And being kind to your body means different things. Don't do anything to the extreme, but also be appreciative for all that your body is doing for you. Mm -hmm. Because many People that I see, and you know, we'll have we put a lot of guilt on ourselves. You know, there's mom guilt, wife guilt, friend guilt. And we're we're often more harsh on ourselves than is necessary. So one thing that I actually do for myself and my family, and I recommend my patients doing, it's not really related to gut health, but it all is because of the mind-body connection, Mm -hmm. is to keep a gratitude journal. Mm. And just write down every day, three things that you're thankful for. It's a very short task, but it reminds you of all the blessings that we have. And you can find gratitude in really simple things. It doesn't have to be like overt, huge gestures that make a difference. It's like small things like, I didn't have to wait long to get my car out of the parking garage or, you know, like little things. Somebody opened the door for me when I was getting my coffee this morning. And reminding yourself of those positive things, like I said, the serotonin, that happy hormone affects our health, both in terms of anxiety and depression, but also in just how we are feeling in in our stomach and our colon. So a gratitude journal is a great way just to remind yourself that be kind to yourself. Live in gratitude, and it does make a difference. Yes. Don't do things that are too extreme. I see a lot of people, for example, um, who do the low FODMAP diet, mm. and I'm uh, sure that you've you must have talked about this. But the low FODMAP diet is um, so FODMAP stands for fermentable oligo monosaccharides and polyols, and it's actually a diet that has been recommended for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. And FODMAPs are essentially short chain fatty acids that are not easily, oh, sorry, it's short carbohydrates, short, small carbohydrates that are not easily digestible. And so when people eat things with high FODMAP, they often get some bloating and discomfort. And so um, there was a research study out of Australia where they looked at the low FODMAP diet and um, saw that patients with irritable bowel syndrome did do better on a low FODMAP diet. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, this has kind of been taken out of context because that was a very small study. And the low FODMAP diet, although it does have, I think, a limited role, is not something that I generally recommend to most of my patients with irritable bowel. It's kind of like something I use as a last resort. If I can't get you to feel better with other things, because in fact, you're eliminating so many healthy foods. Mm -hmm. You're eliminating a lot of fruits and vegetables. And I just don't think that that is good for your gut health, especially long-term. It was never even designed to be Mm long-term. It was meant for a very short four to six week course. Um, But I will see patients who come in who actually get stressed out by trying to follow the low FODMAP diet yeah. because somebody told them to do it. And then they're coming in and they're like, I have restricted my diet. I can't eat anything. I'm so stressed. I don't know what to eat. My symptoms are the same. They're just worse. And actually that stress by trying to follow such a restrictive diet is making things worse. And any potential benefits of that diet is being negated by all the stress you're putting on your body. So um, that's just one example where I I don't like restrictive diets, and I also think that uh, anything too extreme is going to add stress to your life, and then the stress is going to increase the bad bacteria.
0: Mm, 100% agree. And I would say that even in my own clinical practice with my patients, I've used... I reckon low fodmap's less than 15% of the time. And I agree with you. It's mostly around managing that stress, adequate fiber, adequate fluid, or just potentially reducing one or two small triggers in their diet rather than going completely low FODMAP because a lot of people do. They hang on to that and they do feel so much better initially because they're reducing a lot of those fermentable carbohydrates that do cause us to have extra gas, extra bloating, that sort of thing. But then long-term, it's kind of like that cash 22 where it does better in the short term, but it's worse in the long term because you're reducing all of those natural types of prebiotics. You've got no good fuel for your gut bacteria long-term and your symptoms are always going to be worse in the long term. And I see it so often that someone's been like, oh, I've been on a low FODMAP diet for three years now. It really works, but now I can't eat anything and my gut's worse than normal. And they sort of say, well, so I I want to try this diet. I want to try keto. Now I want to do gluten-free. And I just sort of say to them, I've got nowhere to go. Like You're literally not eating anything. I couldn't pull out anything more from your diet. The only thing I'm left with is to add back in. And they say, they're so fearful of these Wonderful foods like you know I can't eat garlic, I can't eat a slice of sourdough, that sort of thing. And it's like we well, just let's just try a little bit, and and they're okay, and they're like, oh my goodness, I haven't eaten this for five years, and and I can have a small amount, but they're just they're holding onto that fear so much around these foods because they've been placed on these overly restrictive diets. So you're right, it does have a a time and place for some people, but it's definitely not something that you should be following long-term at all, because it is more detrimental in the long-term, isn't it?
1: Totally. I I couldn't agree with you more. I I kind of tell my patients that both a low FODMAP diet, a keto diet, you might get some short-term gain, Mm -hmm. but really it's long-term pain. Mm -hmm. And that's not what we want. We don't want to feel good for just a few weeks, but then be destroying our gut health and our you know future health over the next few years. And so I think you're exactly right because I see these people come in on these restrictive diets and it's about adding back the food mm-hmm. and adding it back slowly and I think that's also when you I talk to my patients that it's not just what we eat but who are you eating with? Mm. Are the people you're eating with causing you to be stressed? Are you eating on the run and you're not actually sitting down and just taking the time to focus on your food? Are you eating while you're watching a TV show that's like very stressful? Because, and you know this too, that people can eat one food one day and have no symptoms. Mm -hmm. And they can eat the exact same food on a different day and they'll say, I experienced bloating, gas, pain. I can't eat that food and i explain it is not the food the food is not the situ- the problem it's what else is going on in your life around you because it is not just you know in isolation of the food that's when that brain gut microbiome pathway comes in let's talk about all these other things that are affecting what's going on and the answer is not to eliminate that food now permanently mm. the answer is to try to figure out what can we do that's going on in our environment to make sure that we can continue to eat these,
0: those foods just like you had that food one day and you didn't have any problem. Mm. And such a simple thing that I think a lot of people just don't even think about is chewing your food properly. And that's somewhere, particularly when people come with, and their biggest symptom is bloating, that's where I start. I'm like, how how do you chew your food? Oh, I eat on the run. I, I wolf it down. I'm back in the office in five minutes time. If you're not going to chew your food properly, digestion begins in your mouth. You're always going to have problems. So again, simple things like that, that I think people want to pinpoint one or two particular foods and food always gets the blame. Whereas people, they don't want to work on their stress. They don't want to get more sleep. They don't want to chew their food more. They'd rather just place themselves on a restricted diet and cut things out rather than looking at their health um, holistically.
1: Totally. And the other thing too, is that not all bloating is bad. (laughs) Yes. You know, it is okay to experience some bloating and discomfort because the foods that we're talking about on those, the broccoli, the cabbage, beans, they are going to produce gas. Those are you know, healthy foods for our gut health. But part of it is they do ferment. And that fermentation is part of what's making it healthy. But you will experience some bloating and gas. So some bloating and gas is normal. And I think it's also about setting those expectations. Um, because I don't think it's reasonable to n- never have gas and bloating. Mm,
0: no, definitely love it. And now, uh, um, leaky gut is something that, again, I get asked about all of the time, and I'm sure that you you do as well. Um, and I guess it's something that a lot of people, I guess, feel like they have because social media tells them that they have this leaky gut when they haven't been given a diagnosis from their doctor or of anything else. So I'd love for you to explain to our lis- listeners. What exactly leaky gut is in your I guess explanation, and um, why it 's not a proper diagnosis, because I see a lot of things like this is a leaky gut diet, you take this pill for leaky gut, and I try to explain to my patients it 's not a proper diagnosis you 're not getting to the root cause of the problem so leaky gut um, does not exist
1: in any gastrointestinal diagnosis. Mm. It is essentially a layman 's term for what we would call increased intestinal permeability Mm -hmm. and leaky gut is a little bit of a combination of irritable bowel syndrome and also gut bacterial dysbiosis. So we know that when we are maybe not necessarily eating healthy food and our gut health is not fine, um, you can get a little bit of a leaky gut. So let me explain that. There, There is a very thin lining of cells between the inside of our um, intestines and our bloodstream. And those cells are held together by tight junctions. So um, it's kind of like a Lego block and they're supposed to be in a straight line and it's supposed to prevent the toxins from going in and out, but it's supposed to allow the nutrition to flow and water. And if we get abnormal gut health and a lot of increased bad bacteria, then it's not in a straight line anymore. You get these tight junctions, they become a little bit loose and it allows for toxins to flow in and out. That's essentially what I think of when I think of leaky gut, you have increased intestinal permeability toxins and things that are going in and out should not normally do that. You, there is no pill There is um, no magic solution to fix it. It's just telling us physicians that your gut health is not proper. And that's when you need to go back and look at your diet, your lifestyle, and other factors that could be causing this increased intestinal permeability. Some of this is, is normal. We know, for example that when people get a gastroenteritis or a GI illness, Mm -hmm. 10% of people develop bacterial dysbiosis and irritable bowel. So these are healthy people that weren't having any issue, they got a diarrheal illness, and now they have some symptoms. And that's because anytime you get a GI illness, just like you're increasing the bad bacteria, it's also wiping away the good bacteria. And sometimes you might need to take a course of antibiotics to change your gut bacteria. Sometimes it's viral, it runs its course. But either way, you might get some of these leaky tight junctions, and it just takes time to heal and get back to your normal. So the biggest advice that I can give to people who have this is to really, especially in this time period, make sure you're getting those 30 different fruits and vegetables and minimize the animal and dairy products. Because at this point, and the research keeps changing, but at this point, going toward a whole food plant-based diet, especially um, if your gut health is not normal, that's kind of the best thing that we have right now to improve your gut health. So um, people also ask me around this time period about, I guess, like magic pills, probiotics. Mm -hmm. Should they take a probiotic? Should they not? So You know, I always try to provide people with evidence-based medicine. And when we started to learn about probiotics, I think many people in the GI field, me included, thought there was no harm to probiotics and we were giving out probiotics quite frequently. Okay. You have bloating, gas, you're not feeling well, take a probiotic. Okay. You had a GI illness, take a probiotic. And that was actually what was recommended by our GI guidelines. But the thing we're realizing now is that that's probably not the best thing because um, in the US, we, they have to be medications and treatment should be FDA approved. They have to go through a strict regulation system to make sure that they're safe. The appropriate research and trials have been done on them. And we don't have any system in place to regulate probiotics. So we don't necessarily know what's in them. Mm. The second thing is, is that we're not really at a stage in our understanding of the gut microbiome to know what strains of bacteria or what quantity are necessary to help improve our gut health and our gut microbiome. So when you read the labels, you'll see probiotics with 30 billion bacteria, 10 different strains, maybe some with five strains, 15 strains. It's like all over the place. And every company is marketing their own different one. And we just don't know what's right. And some of the research that's coming out actually is showing that if you take a probiotic, you might actually um, make those bad bacteria that are in your system stay for longer. So instead of just getting yourself the good bacteria, it's actually prolonging some of the bad bacteria. So... The research is actually, I think, swung the other way before we were telling people to take probiotics. And now we're kind of leaning against probiotics, especially not routinely. Mm. There are some of my patients who say they've started a probiotic and they feel better, then fine, continue that if it's helping your symptoms and your system. But it's not something that I generally recommend. And it's definitely no longer first line. Mm. So we have to try these other things first. And then if, you know, we're stuck and we still can't get anywhere, then yes, maybe of course of probiotics might help. Um, but that's kind of how it's related and related to the leaky gut.
0: And with leaky gut, there is no um, diagnosis for it, is there? Because I just feel like a lot of um, alternative practitioners online just throw that word around all of the time. Like Somebody you know, might be saying, oh, I've got a terrible gut. They're like, oh, clearly you've got leaky gut. Do X, Y, and Z. But as you mentioned, for our listeners at home, for anybody who thinks that they, you know, they've gone through all the procedures, they've come back, um, with nothing, you know, no sort of red flags or anything like that. If they're sitting at home and they think, well, you know, something's not right and they're sort of thinking, all right, I might have a little bit of a sensitive gut. I might have a little bit of leaky gut. Your best advice is to stick with what we talked about in the beginning, healthy whole food diet, minimizing stress, maximizing your sleep and doing a type of exercise that is positive movement for your body rather than additional stresses.
1: That was an absolutely great summary. Correct. Okay. <laughs> that's exactly what I would recommend. Yeah, because um, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, a lot of people and companies are marketing to patients and saying mm. that okay, you might have leaky gut. I have a product that can be helpful because, yes. of course, that's helpful for you know individuals and companies. I mean, the probiotic business is a billion dollar business, mm. multi billion dollar business. Um, but I don't think that you need to go that way. And in fact, like I said, I think that potentially there are some risks that we don't even know about. Now, I think in the future, we might learn more about probiotics and more about leaky gut. But um, right now, it just means you got to take good care of your gut health. And um, not only is a whole food plant-based diet helpful if you have some of these symptoms, Mm. but some of the research is actually showing that If you are following a whole food plant-based diet, you are less likely to develop symptoms later down the line. So if you get a viral GI illness later, your gut microbiome is more resilient to bounce back to the way it was before if you follow some of these healthy lifestyle tips.
0: And I'd love to pick your brains for just a second around um, the current evidence in terms of what you know around um, the uh, plant-based diet versus a vegetarian diet. So really, I'm, I guess I'm looking for, I understand the research in terms of the meat and that sort of thing, and, um, but really just how the link with dairy comes in. So would you say that somebody who's following a vegetarian diet compared to a traditional Western diet that's full of processed foods and that sort of thing, would just that step down to um, maybe a vegetarian diet be really helpful as well? Or do you really feel like dairy really does have a huge negative impact Um, if somebody was following a really healthy whole food diet, but chose to include small amounts of dairy as well? Do you have an uh, opinion around that? Yeah. So I think
1: when I think about diet, I think about it as a spectrum and the research does show that the more you can go toward a whole food plant-based diet, so minimizing the animal products as well as minimizing the dairy, then that tends to be the most helpful for your gut health. Um, But many people are vegetarian and they don't even have GI symptoms, and then that's okay too. You kind of have to do what's right for you and your body, but the research does show, especially if you're having symptoms – that the more you can go toward a whole food plant based diet, then the better that is. Um, additionally, many people that I see do have a problem with dairy because they have lactose intolerance. Mm. And lactose intolerance is, I think, an underdiagnosed condition. Um, and it some people don't realize that. It's not necessarily something you have to have had your whole life. I see people who develop symptoms of lactose intolerance in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s as they age. Um, And so I think that's actually an easy change for some people. If they start having symptoms, it can be an easy switch to cut out the dairy, especially nowadays. We have so many different options um, with almond milk, soy, oat there are other options. So I actually do recommend my patients who are having symptoms to try to switch off of dairy and many of my patients will feel better. Um, so you kind of have to do what's best for you because a lot of these changes are not necessarily easy. It requires a commitment and it mm-hmm. requires often equipment for you and the rest of your family members. Uh, but as much as you can go to a whole food plant-based diet, that's better. And being vegetarian and vegan does not mean you are necessarily healthy. So, um, you know, a classic example is you can have French fries every day and that (laughs) is vegan, Mm -hmm. but that is not healthy. That is not a whole food plant-based diet where you're minimizing some of the oils and the sugars as well. Um, so it'd be better to have the potato than French fries every day. So, um, Just remember that being vegetarian and vegan is
0: not always a solution. Mm, Definitely love it. And I just wanted to clarify, you you mentioned um, the 30 different types of fruits and veggies. Um, I personally thought it also included um, whole grains as well, or is it just 30 different types of fruits and vegetables only? I normally tell my patients that if they're including different things like chia seeds and linseeds and rolled oats, then that can um, be counted in the 30 different types of um, plants a week as well. Or is the research really specifically to just fruits and vegetables? That is a great question. I think, and
1: I will have to double check, but I think that the research was more on fruits and vegetables, but that being said, I definitely endorse having whole grains and chia and flaxseed. I actually see a lot of patients who come to me on a gluten-free diet, thinking Mm -hmm. that that's going to help their symptoms. And I, um, again, think a lot of this is marketing because, only 1% of patients in the United States have celiac disease. So if you have celiac disease, you have a gluten allergy and you definitely need to avoid gluten because it can increase your chances of small bowel cancers. If you do not have celiac disease, then most people should be able to eat gluten and grains and whole wheat without any issue. In fact, research um, was done and they looked to see about whether a gluten-free diet would be helpful for protecting people against heart attacks and heart disease. And they found that um, eating gluten was actually protective. So when you're cutting out a lot of the products that contain gluten, it's actually potentially harmful, even though you think you might be doing something healthy. And it's probably because you're minimizing and cutting out a lot of the fiber.
0: Mm. And I think a lot of people almost feel better originally if they go gluten-free because they're cutting out the majority of the processed foods. They're cutting out the majority of the crap in the diet and that, you know, they can't have pizza and they can't have, um, you know, cakes and biscuits and that sort of thing. And then- the small amount of, of gluten that they do have in their diet, they, they sort of vilify that as well, where it's like, no, you can have a slice of sourdough um, with your breakfast if you like, or, you know, rolled oats or a bit of barley in your salad, that's okay. But I think that people, again, it's that spectrum, they sort of, they just lump everything into the, this is bad box, rather than just sort of minimizing all of the processed foods and sticking to just a whole food, um, unprocessed diet as well. So I'm glad you brought up the gluten-free No, that's exactly right. It's usually they feel better because they're cutting out the processed food.
1: And it is kind of tough to distinguish that, but um, that's exactly right.
0: Mm. Now, I'd love to um, pick your brains around the link between women's health and gut health. So, you know, we've talked a lot about irritable bowel syndrome
1: and irritable bowel syndrome is uh, definitely more common in women. It's almost seen um, like a two... Two to one ratio in women to men. Mm -hmm. And it's very common. About 40% of patients that I see in the office are going to come in with irritable bowel, and they're predominantly women. So, why is that? You know, we know that women tend to take on a lot of family stress. They tend to internalize a lot of those life activities, life stressors, and they hold on to it in their gut. So, we know women are more likely to develop irritable bowel syndrome from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But we think that there also is probably a hormonal reason for irritable bowel. And this is, you know, very early on in the stages of understanding about the hormones and irritable bowel. But for example, estrogen receptors are located in our GI tract. So we know that if our estrogen and progesterone levels are changing, that's going to affect our gut and our GI system. So you just have to, you know, ask any female who's had their period and their menstrual cycles if they have symptoms of PMS. And many women, when you get your period, you're going to experience bloating, cramping, maybe some nausea, um, and even GI symptoms. And that's because those estrogen, progesterone levels affect our gut. And you know that's something that you know men just can't relate to or don't understand. I see a lot of women who come to the office and they'll say. I have no medical issues. I am healthy, but I get diarrhea every time I get my period. And, you know, they're coming to me as their GI doctor and I'm telling them, you know, you you only have it for those two, three days. The first days, like we really do not need to do a very extensive workup. We can do some basic workup, but most likely this is because of hormonal changes. Mm. And, um, you know, I have two children, so I have been pregnant and, When you're pregnant, your estrogen, progesterone levels really change and your whole GI system can get out of whack. So I see women who are pregnant coming in with reflux symptoms and heartburn, nausea, vomiting, constipation, Mm -hmm. diarrhea. The progesterone, especially when we're pregnant, can cause constipation. And that can be a really um big problem for many women. And it's not just, you know, in the third trimester when you're carrying, you know, your large baby and that he or she is pushing on your intestines. We can actually see a lot of these symptoms even in the first trimester. And that just goes to show you that it's the hormones that are causing a lot of these symptoms. So um, we know that the hormones play a role in intestinal motility. Mm. And uh, that can affect whether things are refluxing up or whether things are moving out slowly
0: or quickly. Mm -hmm. And do you have any recommendations, I guess, for our listeners at home that aren't, I guess, medication-based that if they do have hormonal, um, you know, increases in progesterone or estrogen or something like that, um, I guess, from a food-based perspective, um, rather than, I guess, a lot of those things can be I guess change by medication, but do you have any um as you mentioned um progesterone and, and constipation is is definitely a thing for some females um I guess basic fiber fluid physical activity recommendations do you have any other i guess tips outside of that for every, anybody who might be struggling with with constipation and sort of feeling like they are doing things right at home so I think you're you're
1: right like fiber is a really important aspect, especially when women are constipated. Um, and so like something really simple. So we, we've talked about fruits and vegetables, but just something really simple, like taking prunes every day or prune juice is very helpful in just kind of stimulating the colon to move quickly. Um so applesauce, um, anything with high fiber is gonna be helpful to move things through. Um some some women can experience some abdominal cramping and pain. So one thing we can do for that is a little bit of peppermint. So peppermint tea can be helpful to uh, calm the GI system in a very benign way. But uh, for constipation, I think just getting your fiber and prunes for many people is enough, just four or five prunes a day. I I take a smoothie every morning. I think that's a really easy way to get my fiber in. And you can get all different fruits and vegetables and making sure you're getting enough fiber. There's, there is another reason people get constipated. We can talk about that. It's not dietary related, but it is very commonly seen in women and it's uh, a pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm. So in order to have a good bowel movement, things need to move through our colon properly. And so that's when diet and lifestyle can be helpful. But in a lot of women, their pelvic floor is very tight. And we don't know exactly why that is. We see it in people who've not had children. We see it in people who've had children. Um, We see it in all different people. We don't know why it is. One thing we think might be contributing is that young kids are embarrassed and scared to use the bathroom in public places. So they hold on to their poop and they don't want to go in school or at work. And that can uh, tighten up your muscle tone. And so we do have testing to look at that, but uh, pelvic floor dyssynergia, pelvic floor dysfunction, when the muscles become uncoordinated can actually be a real uh, reason that people get constipation. About half the people I see with gut motility issues will also have pelvic floor dysfunction. And the solution there is, believe it or not, but it, it's physical therapy.
0: Yeah. I love that you brought that up.
1: It's all related. You know, there's never one answer for one problem. It's usually mm-hmm.
0: multifactorial. Yeah. I actually used to, when I used to work at the hospital, um, I used to do part of the gut health clinic, but also what we call the women's health um, pelvic health clinic. And that was a lot of, um, as you mentioned, it was all to do with um, trying to retrain those pelvic floor muscles and even just the positioning. Um, and I guess, again, this is something nobody really talks about on social media, the positioning of when you're going to the bathroom, you know, um, the correct sort of more that squatting position rather than how traditionally, Western, you know, Westerners use, use the toilet. Um, even just the, the way that you position yourself on the toilet has a huge impact as well in terms of um, your bowels going properly as well.
1: That's so true. In fact, I mean, anybody who's listening with constipation right now, that if you just get a small step stool, you might even have one at home. Um, if you have kids or you just get a small step stool at the local store, put your feet on it when you're having a bowel movement. It changes the angle in your anus and your rectum to allow poop to come out more easily. It's like something I think everybody should do. There's no risk. There's no um, downside to doing it. And it's worth trying. That's for sure. Especially uh, whether you're pregnant or not, it's going to be helpful.
0: Definitely. And I think before you go and try all the different pills and supplements and cut out all these foods, it's well worth getting a five or $10 tiny little step from the discount shop and, and putting your feet up on that and seeing if that seeing if that helps plus including a little bit of extra fiber and fluid. They're always what, my, what I call my first line um, options rather than all of the diets and the pills and the, that sort of thing, which may, you know, that small, five percent might help a small five percent of people. Whereas that big top line thing is really even just the positioning of how you go to the bathroom can be so helpful. So I love that you brought that up. I'm sure that is going to change lives from some of the ladies <laughs> listening at home. I hope so. <laughs> now, Dr. Serena, I'd love to ask you um, some listener questions that some listeners have written in and and, um, and requested that you um, potentially give some guidance around if that's all right with you. Yeah, excellent. Sure. So the first question is from Lindy, and we may have, um, we probably have already answered this, but it's really to do with um, her thyroid and constipation. So she said, I have hyperthyroidism and I'm always constipated, yet my doctor tells me that my levels are normal. I eat well, I drink plenty of water, and I get roughly 30 grams of fiber a day. Is it my thyroid making me constipated? So it seems like she's doing all the right things at home.
1: Yeah, definitely. Eating well, drinking water getting a good amount of fiber. So thyroid issues can definitely cause constipation. Um, If you have low thyroid hypothyroid, you're likely to get constipated. If you have high thyroid hyperthyroidism, you're likely to get diarrhea. So we know that the thyroid does play a role in motility. Um, but in, in this case, if her thyroid level is normal, then her gut motility should not be impacted by her thyroid as long as it's been corrected appropriately. So I would, um, make sure that you are exercising, um, and doing a few of the other things that we talked about, making sure that even though you're getting your fiber in, that you are getting the diversity in the fruits and the vegetables and the grains that we talked about, because you can get fiber by having the same food every day. Mm -hmm. So switching it up, because um, we definitely know that patients with diarrhea or constipation or mixed, their gut microbiome is different. There have been studies that have been done out of my university, University of North Carolina, where uh, my mentors analyzed stool samples from different people with different symptoms. And they found that if you have constipation or diarrhea or a mix, your gut microbiome is definitely different. So um, making sure you're getting diverse foods is going to
0: best create a diverse gut microbiome, which is what you really want love it. And I love that you went with food first, not, because when you talk about gut diversity, a lot of people think, oh, I'm just going to go and take a whole heap of probiotics. You know, a couple of billion, you know, live bacteria should do the trick, but rather it's playing that long game and really trying to work on including as many different fruits and vegetables and whole grains as you can to get that diversity over time, because that's what's going to be more beneficial than just trying to take a couple of pills every day and seeing if that makes a difference. Now, the next question is from Nikki. So Nikki said, I'm trying to reintroduce FODMAPs, um, and I'm glad that we brought that up earlier so our listeners know understand what FODMAPs are, but I always find that my symptoms are so bad that it scares me from trying any more. Is there anything that you recommend as I fear that I'll never be able to eat them again due to the pain and the bloating that they cause? So reintroduction of FODMAPs is very important. We talked about that before. Being on a
1: low FODMAP diet for a long period of time, it's only short-term gain and it's gonna be long-term pain. So I don't think that you should reintroduce everything at once. Mm. You know, you've been on a low FODMAP diet, you have to reintroduce one or two things at a time, do those things for a few days, allow your body to adjust and see how you feel and if there are one or two food groups that really create a lot of symptoms then scale back on that and try something else it doesn't mean you don't come back to that food group later the goal is really to get you to be able to eat the normal variety of food that you would eat in your diet before all the symptoms started so start slow one or two food groups at a time and I do think keeping a food diary is very helpful. Um, mm. I know as a provider, it's helpful. I think even as a patient, it's helpful. Now, you don't want to get too stressed out and too detailed about this, but just like some basic, um, you know, I, I felt okay, just some basic comments I think can be helpful.
0: Hmm. And I love that when you said food diary, I actually ask my clients um, to keep a food and mood diary a lot of the time. Oh, so it's, what are you eating? Where are you eating it? And how are you feeling? Because again, looking at that holistically, it's like, oh, I ate this wonderful, um, you know, um, tofu fry with all of these different vegetables and blah, blah, blah. But I was eating it on the run. I was checking emails while I was eating it. Then I was answering business calls between mouthfuls. And it's like, and then I was feeling really bloated and my digestion was off after that, you know, after that meal. And automatically they'll say, oh, I, I, can't eat tofu it's really bad for me rather than looking at what was happening overall so I think a food mood and symptom diary um is a a wonderful thing as well I
1: love that I think I might have to incorporate that because that is so true it's (laughs) all of those things are important
0: so I absolutely love that now wonderful so the next question is from Kate Um, she would like to know your opinion on antidepressants being used for IBS
1: So there are a lot of different treatment options for irritable bowel syndrome. We talked about some of the basic ones, um, food, lifestyle, diet, environment, sleep, all of those things. That's pretty much the first line. After that, we do often use medications like antispasmodics if people are in a lot of pain, um, and that can help to calm any pain or spasms. It's basically muscle relaxants, very specific to your gut and your colon. But there are a small subset of patients that do require antidepressants for their irritable bowel syndrome. And it's because, like we talked about, that 95% of the serotonin is produced and made in your gut. So when we're giving antidepressants, we are trying to give serotonin boosters and increase your serotonin in your body. The dosage that we use if we're just treating it for irritable bowel syndrome is a lot lower than the dose that we would use if we were trying to treat depression and anxiety. Now, if you have mm-hmm. some other issues and have depression and anxiety as well, we might use a higher dose because we're trying to treat your whole body. But um, yes, antidepressants are used, and I do counsel my patients because if I have to use it, they do get scared. But I um, do reassure them it's a very low dose. It doesn't mean that you need to be on it lifelong if we can get you to feel better, and some of the other lifestyle Things that we talked about take time, and as you feel better, Mm -hmm. we can scale back on those medications, but it actually can be very helpful for patients, especially if they're experiencing the pain aspect or the visceral hypersensitivity. It can help to calm
0: those nerves down so that um, they're not in pain all the time. Um, And now next question from Mary. So Mary would like to know, is there a link between fertility and gut health? I suffer from IBS and poor gut health, and we cannot fall pregnant.
1: So there is a link between fertility and celiac disease, but with fertility and gut health, um, there is no strong evidence to suggest that your gut health is linked to fertility. Now, like I said, the gut health research, we are still in the early stages. So potentially we might find something um, related to infertility in the future. But as of now, there is uh, no research that, that I could find that I'm aware of that is linking gut health to fertility. I do think um, good gut health is important for good overall health, which is important for fertility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I would not... Um, say that if you're having infertility issues, it's necessarily gut health. But I would still say, try to have a good, healthy lifestyle
0: and healthy diet. Mm, Definitely. Because that may not be as helpful as Mary was hoping for. No, I think that even just from a reassurance point of view, I think it could be helpful potentially for her to know that. But also um, a lot of people who are, you know, maybe having troubles falling pregnant, you'd assume that there is a lot of stress and anxiety and that sort of thing as well. Um, And so I think just even managing that and trying to do things like the meditation or some yoga, just to sort of calm that body down a little bit. And as you mentioned, from a health perspective in general, Um, looking after your gut health is always going to be positive.
1: And actually one of the things that got me um, interested even more specifically in gut health is that I became pregnant with my child during my GI fellowship. So I, with my first daughter, I really did not know much or anything about gut health. Um, And so I will say that if you do become pregnant, your gut health is really, really important. And That is what made me become passionate about gut health. Um, So I think I was better with my second daughter. (laughs) but I didn't know as much with my first, but, you know, I thought, and I was a doctor and I was in gastroenterology and I did not know that gut health was so important for your baby's gut health. Um, I thought that it's really important that you eat healthy, after the baby is born, or I thought it was really important that you give your kids good food, but I didn't realize how important mom's gut health is while the baby is in your womb. And afterwards, how important your gut health is in terms of breastfeeding and giving your child a good gut health. And that might be a topic for a different day, but, um, it is really important that you take care of yourself for moms because you're setting up your child's um, gut health for the
0: rest of their lives. I love it. Great point. Um, And now two more questions left. So Hannah says, what is your opinion on colon cleansing, especially when you are really blocked up?
1: So um, there are different colon cleansing. So one are colonics where people go to a store, they get a probe, put up their bottom and they're filled with fluid and Those are colonics you have to pay for. I do not recommend those. Okay. Same. Um, Do not recommend. Yes. The GI guidelines do not recommend going somewhere, paying for this, and getting a colonic. But it is really important that you poop regularly. If you are not pooping regularly, if you are constipated, all that bad gut bacteria is fermenting and it is going to cause you symptoms. In fact, The most common reason that people have bloating and gas is because they are not pooping enough. And all that poop is staying there and they're having symptoms. So I think it is important that you go regularly. And in some of my patients who have a very slow colon, they do have to do a colon cleanse, maybe taking... Um, a Miralax prep, or maybe taking laxatives, similar to what we do in terms of um, the colon cleanse before a colonoscopy. Yes, They might have to do that once in a while. They might not even have to do it to that extreme level, but they might have to do part of that to get their colon to start moving and to get cleaned out. Because I have seen patients of mine who have not had bowel movements or have a bowel movement every seven to 10 days. Mm. That is not okay. And sometimes even with fiber and water, like I said, some of these things take time to work. Fiber is not an immediate fix. Mm. It is working on your gut microbiome pretty quickly, but by the time you see effect, it might be a few weeks. And so in those cases, doing a short course of um, some stool softeners or something to help you go might be necessary, but it's kind of like a last resort for people.
0: Mm. And I'll just clarify for um, our listeners at home as well. When you say, um, what is a normal bowel motion? um, It's anything from once every three days to three times a day. Is that right? There's sort of that that, that spectrum. There is
1: a lot of variability. Yes. And you have to do what's normal for you. If once in three days is normal for you, that's okay. If twice a day is normal for you, then that's okay too it's when, if there's a change, we get worried. Yeah. Cause
0: I get a lot of questions from people saying, Oh, I don't go to the bathroom, you know, every single day. And my partner says that there's something wrong with that. And I say, well, if that's just you. And you're not experiencing any pain or, or symptoms with that. And it's just been you for a long time. Well, that then that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you said, when people start getting up to that, you know, they haven't gone for an entire week, then, you know, There are obviously other things that we would like to do, but I'm in the same boat as you. I don't. um, I don't recommend colon cleansing cleansing at all, and it um, can actually be dangerous. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah,
1: it is because somebody is putting a tube up your rectum without visualization. So, for example, when we do a colonoscopy, I am putting a tube in the colon, but there's a camera on the end. I see where I'm going and what I'm doing. And there have been instances where that probe goes and causes a perforation or a hole or damages the colon lining. So you don't want to do that. And I think you brought up a really good point too, is that um, everybody's poop is a little bit variable. So a few times a day is normal for some, and then once in every few days is normal. And that is because um, our gut microbiome is very specific to us as an individual. Mm. And it is as specific to us, if not more than our fingerprint You know, there are so many varieties of bacteria, strains, quantities, and what works for me might not work for you. It might not work for somebody else. So it's important that you are in
0: tune with your own body and what is normal for you. Mm, I love it. Individualization. Exactly. So important. (laughs) All right. Dr. Serena, final question from uh, Gillian. How do I prevent uh, having a swollen and sore stomach in the evenings? So
1: when I hear that, I hear about somebody getting bloated and uncomfortable. So in America, we do not eat the right way. Neither do we in Australia. It might be similar (laughs) to to Australia. So like many Americans, they like skip breakfast or, you know, they have lunch on the go and then dinner is the largest meal. Mm -hmm. And that is not the correct breakfast and lunch should be our heaviest meals and dinner should be a lighter meal. Because if you think about it, after we eat dinner, we're not doing that much activity. Most of us are um, a little bit more sedentary after dinner because we're getting ready to go to bed and to go to sleep. So the first thing I would say is uh, make sure that your dinner is smaller and that your heavier meal is breakfast and lunch because our gut motility has a circadian cycle to it. Just like we sleep at night and we are awake in the morning, same thing with our gut. Our gut has specific timings. For example, many people poop in the morning and that is because the gut time cycle wakes up around 5 a.m. and it stimulates the colon, so we should try to poop. And same thing in the evening time, our gut motility, our GI tract slows down. So if you eat a big meal, it's just staying around in your stomach And it's not moving through appropriately. So that's probably the first thing I would recommend. Um, And there are a a few other things to talk about is what are you eating? So not just the quantity, but is there something different that you're eating in the evening that you're not eating breakfast and lunch? Um, So looking maybe a little bit specifically at some food sensitivities uh, there that are causing some bloating and gas. Um, And then the other thing that I think could be helpful is a little bit of intermittent fasting. So eating your dinner a little bit earlier and allowing for a gap through the night can be helpful. And it's the same concept that our GI tract slows down at night. So if you eat a little bit earlier, then you are allowing your body a little bit more time to digest the food.
0: That's so funny because I actually wrote myself a note to ask you what your opinions were on intermittent fasting for gut health. And you brought it up as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I have started to do intermittent intermittent fasting myself. I kind of started just um, randomly because I would come home from work and I, I'm hungry when I come home from work, and my kids would eat around five five thirty, so I would eat with them and then you know go to bed and kind of my just daily activity was that way. Uh, but then the research now really shows that intermittent fasting can be helpful for your gut health. Intermittent fasting has been shown to be help reduce your chances of getting cancer. So, um, I think in earlier. Dinner time is probably a good thing for many of mm-hmm. us.
0: And is there any, um, I guess, time frames in terms of fasting that you'd recommend? Again, with if um, my clients want to try this, I like to your idea of that spectrum. I sort of wh- where are you starting at? If you've only got sort of eight hours between when you're eating dinner and breakfast, and you're going to try and stretch that out to sixteen, that might be a bit of a stretch to start with. So maybe just try and bump up your window by two hours and go from eight to ten. But do you have any sort of recommendations in eating and fasting windows at all, or you just think? Um, just an extra couple of hours at night time will be helpful for most people. Um,
1: I think you have to do what's right for your body because it all depends on where you're starting. You know, if you're already Mm. starting at 10 hours, then yes, you should bump it up maybe to 12 hours or 14 hours. I think the one thing I'll say, and and I made this mistake when I was doing it is I probably went from like eight to 10 to 16. And that was Mm. not good for me. Like I was hungry and fatigued. (laughs) Hungry, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my kids love to tell me that. So that's I have to eat when I come home. Um, but yeah, I could just tell in my own body that I was fatigued and I w- had low energy. So you don't want to do something, you know, to prevent cancer in the future if you can't function on a day to day basis now. Yeah. So, um, I then had to revamp and I had to slow it down. And so I just do what's right for you and go in slow steps, like start at 10 or 12. I, I don't think you need to do really prolonged fasting for too often. I also tell people to really listen to their bodies. For example, um, when people have their periods and are menstruating, then you know you might not want to fast for so long. And that's okay too, because you really have to pay attention to what's going on in your body and and be mindful that um Again, this is an individual approach, so you have to do what's right for you and trust your gut instinct
0: love it. And I also like that with intermittent fasting. Again, it's such a craze, just like gut health is at the moment. It's very, very popular, but a lot of people are doing it first thing in the morning. So they're having this big dinner and then they're fasting, but they're pushing out their first meal to sort of midday, 1, 2 PM, which again is causing that back-ended eating. But I love how you brought up the concept of um, flipping that around and starting in the morning with a great hearty breakfast and then a a nice lunch and then a smaller size dinner and a lot earlier to sort of fast through that night to help with, you know, better sleep patterns, better digestion. So I think that's a really important concept for our listeners at home to even just have a good think about, because I think with all the the craze with intermittent fasting, a lot of the studies and a lot of the people um, sort of recommending it are very pro, you know, fasting all morning into the afternoon, rather than for gut health, you're sort of recommending flipping that and doing it sort of the opposite way around because it really is based on the fasting time rather than the time that you're eating.
1: Yeah, that that's correct. And I mean I have found that for me if I don't eat breakfast then um you know that's not good for how I'm functioning in the day. And then you also have to think too because the gut microbiome has a lot to do with our metabolism and whether we're gaining weight or losing weight and just trying to make sure that we're continuing to speed up that metabolism instead of slow it down. And so sometimes I think if we do too prolonged of a fast, it might kind of go into a starvation mode where we um, slow down our metabolism. So, you know, I will definitely say I'm not an expert in intermittent fasting. I do think it is helpful. I also think you have to be a little bit cautious of, going to the extreme ends when you're talking about these diets. So, um, I don't think it's necessary to do extreme fastings, but just an earlier dinner, um, to give yourself a prolonged period. I think like, you know, otherwise some people might give themselves six hours. They eat really late at night at 11 or 12, and then they're eating at Mm. six or seven in the morning. and, And I don't think that's good. So I do think eating dinner earlier is, is helpful.
0: Mm, definitely or a lot of people will have an earlier dinner but then they'll be snacking late into the night as well and even just from a weight management perspective obviously it's not going to be beneficial if you're sitting on the couch snacking until 10 30 11 o'clock at night as well so i think benefits all around as well and even as you mentioned trying to stretch it out to that a lot of people perceive that 16 hours as like the gold standard whereas it's really not and if you're forcing yourself to get to that 16 hours and you're absolutely starving you're probably going to overeat by the time that you start eating anyway and negate any sort of benefits because a lot of people do do it from a weight management perspective and if you're forcing yourself to become absolutely ravenous by the time that you do start eating you're going to probably blow out your calories and eat far more than if you just started eating an hour or two earlier as well.
1: That's true. I was just having a conversation with this about a friend yesterday who was doing these prolonged fasts, but then eating really unhealthy to break the fast because they're starving and that, that's not okay. And, and from a gut health perspective, I think even 12 hours you know, is, is helpful. You don't have to do the 16 hours for mm, your gut microbiome.
0: I've actually seen some research specific to females that say that females actually actually function best between that thirteen to fourteen hour mark, mm-hmm. whereas males can tend to get to that fourteen to sixteen hours a little bit easier. And again, it might just come back to the way we're wired, our hormones, that's right, everything like that. I think this is such a cool time for research because, yeah. you know,
1: like we're really learning so much about the gut microbiome and how this is affecting everything. And we're going to learn more about how the hormones and intermittent fasting, all this stuff. Like we're, I really think we're in the early stages right now, and I can't wait to see kind of where this field goes over the next few years. Like you, it's amazing how much research is coming out every single day. It's actually impossible to keep up with the research because um, research studies are being produced every single day about all of these topics.
0: I love it. it it's so fascinating. And, and gut health is just such a, I, I just, I'm obsessed with it, as I'm sure you are as well. So I would love yes. to have you back on the podcast in six months, 12 months, two years time. And we can probably talk about all of these Brilliant new, interesting studies as well. It would be wonderful <laughs> to see what what's changed.
1: I would absolutely love that. Yes, I know. Because even things have changed now mm. um, compared to just like three, four years ago when I was learning about this field. And so um, and and our guidelines are slowly changing along with that. Like we talked about probiotics, and before we were giving it, and now yeah. we're not giving it as much. And even low FODMAP diet, it's kind of come from come around since um in just a few years so i am excited because hopefully the goal is is that we understand a little bit more about our gut health so that we can all live a happier and healthier life
0: definitely i would absolutely love to have you back on the podcast hopefully sometime soon but thank you so much for giving us all of your time all of your wisdom all of your knowledge i'm sure that our listeners at home got so much out of this podcast today so thank you from the bottom of our hearts (laughs) Thank you so
1: much. And if your listeners want to um, reach out and follow me, I am on Instagram at DocSarina, D-O-C-S-A-R-I-N-A. And I um, am having, I have a website that's coming out soon. Hopefully it'll be up by the time this airs. And it's going to be www.docsarina.com. Wonderful. And they can your listeners can reach out to me there. And uh, I would love to come back
0: on the show. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. So guys, make sure you head on over to Instagram and give Dr. Serena a follow as well. And I'll make sure that I link um, your social medias as well and your website um, in in the podcast notes as well. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.